Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited Rosalind Shahid to this podcast episode to speak with us about supporting students' literacy development at the secondary level in culturally responsive ways. Dr. Rosalind Shahid is an English language arts consultant, an adjunct instructor, a lover of books, and a literacy advocate. She is a native Detroiter, graduate of Detroit Public Schools, and a former Detroit High School English teacher, which grounds her research and practice. The primary aim of her work is to build teacher capacity and by extension, empower students through anti-racist and responsive literacy instruction. Her research and practice examines the interconnectedness of adolescent development, equity pedagogy, and disciplinary literacy. Dr. Shahid holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Michigan, a Master of Education in Reading, and a Reading Specialist Endorsement K-12 from Marygrove College, and a PhD in Reading and Language Arts from Oakland University. She currently works as a literacy consultant for Wayne County Regional Education Service Agency, where she services school districts throughout Wayne County. Rosalind, welcome to the podcast. I'm a little bit exhausted after hearing that all that you've done and what you uh, currently do, but it makes me all the more honored for Erica and I to learn from you and for our students and for other listeners of this podcast to be able to get to know you and learn from you as well. So for the next 20 minutes or so, Rosalind, Erica and I will take turns asking you some questions. How does that? That sounds beautiful. And thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your classroom discussion it just really is an honor to be, you know, asked to share some of what I'm doing with teachers and students and administrators. So with that, Rosalind, we would love to hear some of your story. What led you to devoting your career to literacy education? Wow, that um, is such really a, a beautiful question. And I thought a lot about that. So I have to really start with who made me fall in love with story which would be my great-grandmother. So the first 25 years of my life, my great-grandmother was with us and she really centered us in story. She would tell stories of the South, her migration from the South to the North. And she was such a great narrator. So I can't recall her reading a physical text to me other than the Bible, but because of her story, her ability to just share her wisdom through oral language, it made me fall in love with stories. So I would sit at the kitchen table and write those stories and then add stories of my own. So I think when I think back, that was my first love affair with story. And I think the second piece is because my paternal grandmother was a science teacher. So she made me fall in love with this idea of curiosity. And she was such a reader and writer and just beautiful with how she used words. And so like those two, those two women in my life really grounded me. So I took that love and wanted to become a teacher. Rosalind, I love how you, and you're talking about your love of story and in story and words, you're situating it in all these really important contexts, right? Your family, science, literature, religious context. And I love, I think so often it can be easy to think about reading within a particular school ELA context. And even what you've done in introducing yourself, you've opened that up and said, it's curiosity in the science field that is important to think about literacy. And it's who we are in our homes and around the tables 
and with important people in our lives. So already, thank you for this broad and understanding of literacy. And that leads me to my next question. What's one thing you wish more secondary teachers, Eric and I work with uh, six to eight pre-service teachers and beginning teachers predominantly. What's one thing you wished these, our listeners and students knew across all the content areas from science to ELA, what do you wish they knew more, uh, knew about supporting adolescents' literacy development and literacy development in culturally responsive ways? Wow, that's such an important question. And from my vantage point, I think that it's most important that teachers really understood their relationship and their role as teacher to their own identities. Who are you in relation to this content area that you know that you love, that you've decided to teach? Who are you in relationship to your students and how they interact with you? And who are you in relationship to your content? So it's really this idea that content is important but knowing who you are as a practitioner is just as important. And, and that actually takes time. It's an evolution. I'm constantly finding out who am I. And I have evolved over time from that little girl sitting at the table. And I had some ideas about uh, what teaching was. And those ideas were interrupted. <laughs> when I entered my first ninth grade classroom. So I think we have to look closely and invite students into our worlds and we go into there so we can do what's best for students. I love that word evolving, Rosalind, and over time, and also the positionality of whoever we are in education, we're doing the work too. We're not encouraging others to do something that we're not also doing as teacher educators or even as researchers or whatever. And so thank you for those ideas. And then, so building on that and the idea that we are, I trying to identify not only who we are, but also helping our students cultivate those identities as well. What are some misconceptions about adolescent literacy or literacy in general, or even thinking about how we address students' literacy needs in culture responsive ways. What have you, some of those misconceptions that you've encountered over the years, and then how have you tried to address them? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to adolescent literacy is that somehow it's static, that students have achieved a certain goal. And oftentimes we'll hear the phrase, K through three students are learning to read. And for three of 12 students are reading to learn, is my position that students are always learning to read and always reading to learn. This is a recursive process. And so we want to open up space so that learning can occur in the classroom. And what I think is that what that does for our classroom coach, speaking of being responsive to students' needs, is that it creates a space of belonging. And it goes back to that identity piece. So our goal is not to just teach content, but to build bridges, right? So students are able to use whatever those identities are they come to the classroom with as a bridge to deepening their understanding of content, whether that is scientific content or historical content or just the language arts, right? Whatever it is that they bring to us, we want to use that as a bridge. The only way we'll be able to really 
actualize that is if we know who our students are. So I think we need to be very conscientious of how we are giving agency and voice in our classroom and just really honestly having conversations with students about things other than the content. And that's how we figure out who they are and what might be best in ways to support them. Roslyn, one of the readings that Erica and I have our students encounter is Goldie Mohammed's book and her framework. And I hear so much resonance in what you're saying. And I know that you've worked with her to bring her to, in your current position to do some webinars with teachers. But just re reiterating your comment about how getting to know your students isn't just this side thing that we do, but it's so deeply connected to content and students' identities within our disciplines and our own matter so deeply. Thank you for that. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share in your work over the years, what have been some success stories, some specific experiences in which you've worked with beginning teachers, secondary teachers who've learned and maybe you've walked alongside them to in their efforts to better support students in literacy development? Yeah, so I'll just draw from one of my most recent experiences with Dr. Muhammad has been this idea of how to operationalize culturally responsive practices. Sometimes people think of that as abstract and what do you mean by that? And so first helping districts, school districts, alongside teachers, obviously, but to operationalize the work, it has to go beyond the single classroom. And so within the, the district context that you're working in, what do we buy belonging spaces and inviting students in an agency? So what Dr. Muhammad does through her framework is that she identifies these pursuit. And so one of the districts that, well, two districts that I've been working with this year, they have really gone about shifting their, shifting their lesson planning to mirror Dr. Muhammad's framework. So how does identity show up? Where is criticality? How are we building students' knowledge base in addition to the skills piece. So they have actually put that in their framing. So teachers aren't wondering if this is something I should be doing or not. The district has said yes. And so through that work, it really has opened up space for teachers to feel comfortable. It has made lesson planning more creative like building on that creative genius. So we'll see how it goes. I think students are feel more empowered because they are also being asked, what do they want to see in their content? So that is the work. So we're, so at the ISD level, we work at the district level. We also work side by side in classroom with teachers. And one of the things that we've done specifically with students this year is a more around focused interviews with students, some surveying of students to hear their voice. And so when we survey students, we do that anonymously. And then we bring that information back for students to disaggregate the data. It's a different kind of data that they're accustomed to looking at. So we take the numbers away and we put actual student narrative in front of them and have them respond to that. And that I think that has been really beneficial and shifting practice. Can you, I'd love to hear more about that survey and the kinds of questions um, you're asking students. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure, absolutely. So actually we're building upon Dr. Muhammad's work. 
in that idea of identity. So questions are, who am I is the first question. Who am I? What, who am I as a writer? So we, we did a, a few of these and we contextualized it based on the group of students that we were working with. So this one is specific to Black girls. We were talking about Black Girl Joy, which is a course that we run at Wayne Risa. So to complement the course and extend it beyond just the traditional PD session, we wanted for students' voice to be brought into a PD space. So this was one way we brought in student voice in the PD space which I mean, professional development space. And so the survey posed just a few questions to anchor our work. Who am I as a Black girl? Why do I write? What is the purpose and power of your pen? What else would you like teachers to know? And the responses were beautiful. You know, how they position themselves and how powerful they are. And just their voices were shining through. I remember one response was really about this idea of one girl wanted teachers to know that we may show up differently, but please embrace us. I just thought that was just so powerful. Please embrace us for who we are. And those were the survey distilled out voices from girls, grades four through 12. And fourth graders were just as, their responses were just as impactful and powerful as 12th seniors. So that's just one of the ways that we bring in student voice into our professional learning spaces. So, Rosalind, it sounds to me like you're. And I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm listening to you with multiple hats on. So as a mother, as a teacher educator, as a community member, as a, as another female, and I just, I'm so grateful for the creation of those spaces and for, in particular, for young black girls to be able to say and to own and to love who they are and to be, be able to articulate that in ways that teachers need to hear them and for other young women to be able to say who they are and to be able to encourage teachers to embrace them. Given that and just all of the challenges that so we have COVID, we are currently recording this um, podcast where there was a recent police shooting in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We had George Floyd. We have a lot of things going on in the world. What advice do you have for beginning teachers? I want to remind you that it is purpose and passion that is most important. And I want for you to be resilient if you go into spaces that take those things away from you. Find mentors, find allies, find folks who love children and love teaching, observe them. I would even say pester them. <laughs> that is what I remember as a first year teacher going in and out of classrooms. A teacher gave me, I think the best advice is that find those teachers whose students enjoy and enter into those spaces. Find spaces where learning is happening and enter into those spaces. And you'll find nuggets because 
we're always figuring out who we are as teachers. And I think that is what is most beneficial. Always read about your profession because so often we as teachers, our work has been deprofessionalized. So be anchored in research. And that is how you can create spaces of belonging for students. Be anchored in your beliefs, your stances. We teach out of our beliefs. And so I think the more firm you are in what you believe about literacy practices and how to enact change and how to lift student voice, you'll just be dynamic. You already are because you've decided to take on one of the most challenging jobs, in my opinion, other than parenthood, or maybe akin <laughs> to it. Keep being positive and powerful and brilliant. Rosalind, your tears at the beginning of your reflections, I think, reveal the asset-based ways that I can tell you approach the teachers you work with. I think it's hearing your response, the extraordinary description that you applied to beginning teachers, I think reveals the beautiful ways you do that as you live out your calling in this career and in this profession. And I hope that our listeners re-listen to all the fantastic suggestions and pieces of advice and um, ideas that you just shared about what to do and how to flourish in this really challenging and rewarding profession. And as a side note at Hope College, we use the anchor metaphor a lot, but I'm not sure I have with my teachers about how do you anchor yourself in your work so that you are able to celebrate your students and to remain passionate and to remain all the things that, that you've referenced. So thank you for your honest and beautiful response to that. At the end of each of our episodes is to ask our guests a, a fun lighthearted question that relates to literacy, we think in beautiful ways. In our literacy courses, Erica and I uh, talk about sociocultural theories of literacy and the importance of acknowledging, affirming, drawing on, you use the word bridging, our students out of school literacy practices in home, church, synagogue, et cetera, as well as in sports and other hobbies or groups um, that they actively participate in. So our question to you is, what is one out-of-school literacy practice or community that you identify with that represents the literacy skills and community that you participate in? I'm probably pretty boring. I'm just going to say the library community. And I, I say that because so much is happening in public libraries, and I think they're disappearing, right? They're just phenomenal spaces where we are surrounded by literature, but not only that, there's, there are clubs, there's communication. Every mode of communication happens in our public library. And if we're not careful, they'll cease to exist. So I think finding ways to be more connected and that's what, as a habit, what we do as a family, we visit our local library and we, we just connect there. Yes. So I just think, I think that just brings us full circle, right? When you were talking about your great grandmother and the love of stories. And so this idea of that story seems to be central to your work, not only professionally, but also personally. And so in libraries, of course, house stories and house and our places where we tell stories, we hear stories. 
So I just think it's a really beautiful arc. Not that it was intentional, of course, but that your great grandmother planted these incredibly wonderful seeds that you are passing on not only to your own children, but to teachers you work with, and then also um, your larger family. So I think that's, that's a gift. And as we think about libraries as public spaces that have accessibility and the potential of open doors to everyone in our community. That's not true for other institutions, perhaps, or spaces and how advocacy is needed to keep libraries open and keep libraries being able to be responsive to everyone in their community. I love thinking about that as so we think about advocacy for literacy space, defending our public libraries and supporting them is, is something that it's important to do. Absolutely. I saw recently a podcast of all African-American male librarians, and it was so phenomenal. And I thought I've never really studied that or thought about it, but what those men were doing in, you know, to civically engage children was incredible. I'll see if I can find it and send the link to you all. That would be great. Roslyn, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Deb Van Dynan and Erica Hamilton wishing you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy. 